I have a constraint. I'm, I am here to solve someone's problem that they came to see me for. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Coming off a very solid weekend. Um, looking forward to the new week here. Um, quick housekeeping. Uh, IFAST University members, we have a Zoom call at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please join us for that if you're not on IFASTU. Go to ifastuniversity.com, get yourself signed up so you can join us on those calls. Okay, now let's dig into today's Q&A. This is with Victor, we've talked with Victor uh, before. Very interesting question though. So there are situations that we run into where we have relatively unchangeable constraints. So in this case we had um, we were talking about a patient that had a very large abdomen. So, so internal adipose gets in the way, it takes up space, it prevents things from moving as we would like it to move. So for instance, you can't descend diaphragm when you've got adipose tissue in the way. You can't uh, move an infrasternal angle the way you might want it to move under those circumstances. So what do you do? And so we talked a little bit about that. So, so this is actually probably a very useful uh, video for, for a lot of clinicians. Um, especially for dealing with uh, folks that are in pain, because sometimes we have to do some things that are, that are a little counterintuitive and bias a window of opportunity or bias some time um, to where we can actually work towards normal relative motions. So again, I think this will be a really good one for you all. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, I'll see you guys at 2 p.m. IFSU people and have a great Monday. All right, clock has started, video is rolling. Victor, what is your question? All right, so I've run into this archetype, if you will, a couple of times in clinic. It's older male, uh, more adipose tissue in their abdominal cavity than is probably needed, or a pendulous belly, if you will, diastasis recti. I'm not sure if that's yep. how you pronounce it. Diastasis. Mm -hmm. Diastasis, low back pain, Yep. Uh, and obviously looking at your model and talking about reorientation and things like that in my head, of course, I want to try to reorient rib cage and pelvis and things like that. <clears throat> I'm finding that that's not required to get people out of pain. Um, but my question is, I don't want to miss the force to the trees either. Of course, it might be better for them to lose some weight as well, Yeah. but for overall health, but, um, if I were to try to go about reorientation and kind of things that you talk about with gaining relative motions with somebody like that, uh -huh. how, what are some considerations to, uh, to take into account and like how in general would you go about that? Okay. So, so first and foremost, you have a relatively unchangeable constraint. Okay. Because okay? the chances of them, like if, if you tell somebody, okay, your, your internal body fat is such, so big that it's now interference, right? To make a, the changes that you want. So to alleviate pain, you just need adaptability, okay? So if you got somebody that is internally rotated in the spine, so internal rotation would be like the anterior orientation of the pelvis, spine goes forward, people would describe that as an increased lordosis, that's IR. Mm -hmm. 
if you could actually take them farther into that IR and then you created a, a, a literally a window of adaptability, right direction or wrong direction, you actually may alleviate pain because all I need is change, right? I need change. Is it ideal? No. But you created a window of adaptability. So, so this happens a lot when people are trying to make a change. So let me give you a for instance. So, so somebody walks in and they're whatever presentation they might be on the table test or whatever, somebody does an intervention and they gain internal rotations, but no external rotation. Okay. So that means you created more orientation somewhere. Okay. So if I capture more internal rotation in a shoulder, but I don't capture the external rotation that goes with it, all I did was teach the spine to turn a little bit farther than it did before. So that, so internal rotation of the shoulder is, is spinal rotation away. So if yeah. I increase your ability to turn your spine away, guess what? I gave you a bigger window of adaptability that actually may alleviate the symptom. Did I restore normal adaptability to where um, I, I can trust that, that you will have greater access to all relative motions. No. Right. But, but I did make you feel better. Okay. So, so now we have an interesting game. So you literally have a constraint that is interference. So now it's like, okay, where can I create motion that will not make this scenario worse? Okay, give them a window of adaptability so they are at least comfortable. And then maybe with enough time, we can start to restore some of this relative motion that he truly needs, right? Because that's what people do. So you ever have a patient with a herniated disc? I mean, with a, yeah, I'm not sure if it was truly symptomatic yet, but. Not my, not my question. Yeah. Not my yeah. question. So what is a herniated disc? A herniated disc is a connective tissue delay strategy to slow that side down. I created an expansion in the connective tissues, which is a yielding action, just happened to be the disc because nothing else could yield, right? To create the delay. So I had to use my spinal disc to do it, okay? So that slows them down, right? That's a yielding action, just like I would want in a relative motion situation. It just happens to be an isolated one. And then it alters the structure, which can be risky. Right. But that's how you get it. So people with an, with an asymptomatic herniated, like the stuff just shows up on MRIs all the time. Right. Yeah. Well, oh, you have a herniated disc. It's like, yeah, but I have, they, they say it's on the left. It's a left lateral uh, L5 S1 disc herniation. They come in with right hip pain. You know, it's kind of not related. Right. But, <laughs> but it tells you the strategy that they're using to create the delay. It's like, so what do you do? I just need to give them a more distributed delay strategy on that side. And a lot of times that, that right side stuff um, starts to clear up. Right. Okay. So when you have a constraint like this, now you, this is where you get to be, you know, you get to be the clinician here and really think this through and say, okay, here's what I know. I, it, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to capture normal relative motions because I have somebody with a very large protruding abdomen. I have a diaphragm that will not descend the way I want it to under any circumstance. Okay. Yeah. You have a diastasis, which means that I have lost a connective tissue constraint. So I don't have normal ISA behavior, which means I don't have normal diaphragm behavior. So, okay. You see where, see what we're building here. So it's like, now it's like, where do I create 
Where can I create an expansion to, to create adaptability? Where can I get him the greatest relative motions? If I can't get him the greatest relative motions, where can I get motion safely? And it's very, very difficult to do this, okay? But it's possible, but it's possible. And then, like I said, you get him comfortable and then maybe you'll have more time and more opportunity, more windows of opportunity to try to access the normal relative motions that we always seek which tends to be more protective than trying to drive somebody farther into a strategy. Because again, that's risky. But like I said, it happens accidentally all the time. It makes people feel better quite frequently because again, all I did was increase adaptability. I just might have not have given them a better strategy. Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. The other thing with this body type or archetype is that they tend to be what I would picture as a narrow ISA archetype from the lumbar spine down, like very flat from a visual representation, flat lumbar spine, but kind of tucked underneath like a, like a frog that just stood up almost. Yeah. And so the posterior lower compression end game, they look like they, they either got off their Harley Davidson motorcycle or they rode a horse into the clinic, right? Yeah. Usually yeah. the horse on the side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my hometown, only McDonald's in the United States with a place to tie off your horse. True story. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand. No, but 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 you're 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 looking at a situation where somebody's pushed so far forward, right? They're trying to put the brakes on. Yeah. Right. So, so they're using whatever they can. They're on the outside edges of their feet. So they, they look like they're in a supinated representation. They have what would be referred to as a, as a varus knee, which is just external rotation coming down through the system because they're so compressed A to P they have to orient so hard into ER. Right. So they're oriented into ER. Right. And then again, it's like your job is to try to create the expansion or like I said, you move them into a position where they do have a window of adaptability to alleviate pain. These are tough. These are tough because, because you're, yeah. you're battling, you're battling a constraint. It's, it's just like somebody that comes in with like an altered joint because of arthritis. It's like, okay, I have a limited number of strategies in that joint because I don't have normal synovial behavior. What do I do to alleviate the load on, on that? Okay. I can move you in this direction, alleviate the load and give you, give you less symptoms, but I might be creating another situation that ultimately results in another loss of adaptability. These are tough because again, it's like people come to you, they don't come to you to say, they say, Victor, I need, I need full <laughs> relative motions. They don't say that. They go, dang it, man, my knee hurts. And I would like, love that. <laughs> <laughs> Only if they listen to these videos, right? Yeah. No, but in, in all seriousness, it's like nobody comes to you. They, they, they just want the pain to go away. It's right. like there's, there's right. certain things that we can do that, that will alleviate pain, but it's not always the best strategy because we might have to push them farther into something to, to, to capture that because of the constraints. Right. I want to make it very, very clear that I'm not saying that this is the ideal situation. This is actually just to alleviate the symptom. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not the fix. It's like, okay, I have a constraint. I am, I am here to solve someone's problem that they came to see me for, right? Yeah, and I feel like- the, With enough time, you try, to, you try to go in the other direction and recapture everything that they can for health purposes. I gotcha. How would, yeah, that's gonna be a can of worms that's not worth opening at this point. I can see how 
balancing like what they're coming in for was just pain alleviation with what your preconceived like okay gaining relative motions like that internal battle would definitely be I feel like that would be a struggle especially early on for someone like me who's learned from your model as much as I can online instead of imposing my ideas on that person just giving them what they what they want but also needing to understand the consequences of what of what I'm doing is not uh, we got a new guest. <laughs> I think I think you just lost control. Oh, there, boss. Uh, <laughs> um, does that help you at all? Yeah, that does. I appreciate it. I get, I get and then, so so you know under the circumstance, then you, as far as a solution is concerned, we need to talk a little bit about that before we go. You st you still want to try to capture the relative motions. You're going to have to rely on 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 some way to to create some shape change. So this is going to be again wide ISAs respond really really well to side lying activities, rolling and things like that to create the shape change that you want. Okay, so they can create a delay strategy laying on their side that they might not be able to create when they're upright or when they're supine. Right. Okay. Yeah. So so think about you know the all the rolling activities are stepping activities. It's just walking, laying on your side, right? Yeah. So you can start to create, start to create those, and they tend to be fairly comfortable for most people. Um, and again, it's like they don't have to worry about the 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 protruding belly when they're laying on their side nearly as much as when they're upright or laying on their back, because they're going to spread out side to side when they lay on their back, which is where they already are in most circumstances. Lay them on their side, let gravity squeeze them and try to create some expansion that way. That's where you're going to probably buy your best relative motions. Okay. I see. Okay. And that plays really heavily into like the herniated disc yielding posterior strategy. Like you were creating that delay as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Super cool. All, all the herniated disc gives is a focal delay strategy. You want a distributed delay strategy. So no tissue is under, under its maximum load where it's not this focal stress. If it's distributed, that's how you, that's how you do everything. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. All right, man. Good to talk to you. You too. We'll talk soon. Day. You too. You're, you're taking a two-dimensional representation. You're saying these two people are the same. And then the reason that they measure differently is because you're measuring it in a minimum of three dimensions. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a little bit of a busy Tuesday. So we're gonna dig right into today's Q&A. And this is with Pradish. We've talked to Pradish before. Um, he had an interesting question in regards to two athletes that uh, came with the same general physical appearance. So he's looking at posture um, as a representation of what he thought they should measure and they did measure differently. And so this takes us in the direction of understanding why I don't like to talk about the imaginary planes too much because if we start to thinking start thinking in planes, then we, we assume that we should see these same representations or if we get similar measures that we would have the same thing happening on both sides of the body and that's not necessarily true. What we need to understand is that as we're measuring, we have movement on the table if we're doing table tests or as people move through space, they're gonna use compensatory strategies 
to compensate for limitations in movement. And so this is what we're talking about um, as we go through this, this Q&A. So I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people um, to, to see how you can have different measures with what appears to be the, the same representation. So thank you, Pradesh, for asking this question. If you would like to do a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you we tomorrow. Are we are recording, and the clock has started. Pradesh, what's your question? So, Bill, I have two athletes, so this is more of a case study. So um, when I looked in from the side, they both present with a flat lumbar spine, but increased mm -hmm. uh, thoracic and cervical curves. Um, say, but when I table test them, say athlete one, he has limited bilateral straight leg raise. He has uh, good ER and IR on the right side, but limited ER and IR on the left side. So this is uh -huh. athlete one, but athlete two, yep. he, uh, he he has like 90 almost uh, straight leg raise. He did uh, bilateral ER, hip ER, and 30 uh, ish uh, hip IR. So the, my question is. So, like, so go back I to the. One second. Yeah. One second. Go back, to, go back to the hip IR on the, on the second athlete. Uh, 30 ish. How much? 30, 30, 30, 30 ish IR. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, my question is like when I have these athletes who look sort of similar from the side, <clears throat> but like they present with completely different ranges of motion. So, mm -hmm. like what's happening there? Well, so, so step one, when you're looking at them and you're looking at them in a two dimensional representation, it doesn't really give you any information in regards to what you're looking at. Um, so, so you always hear me talk about moving in space, right? I don't measure things in straight planes for that reason. So, so you're, you're taking a two-dimensional representation. You're saying these two people are the same. And then the reason that they measure differently is because you're measuring it in a minimum of three dimensions. So you have to account for the turns as you're performing these measures. So you can't throw a blanket statement and say, everybody that looks like this from the side is the same, because they're not, obviously they're not, okay? So um, if, you, if you look at the, the, the commonality for these guys, it's like they have limited hip ER. So you know that wherever you have the limited hip ER, you've got an anterior orientation of the pelvis. You understand that, correct? Okay. And then if I have limited hip IR on yeah, top of yeah. that, if I have limited hip IR on top of that, I've got an, an anterior compression. So we're just talking about movement within the pelvis right now. Okay. When I see somebody that, that appears to have a lot of hip IR where it's, it's kind of a bit of a surprise that they would have that under the circumstances, I think you're correct in assuming that you're getting a lot of spinal rotation associated with that measure. So as you're performing the hip rotation measure, the spine is turning away. And so the internal rotation that appears to be coming from the hip is actually the, that, that whole pelvis moving as a unit, which is turning the, the spine away, All right? Yeah. yeah. If I've got anti-orientation in both situations, which you probably do, 
um, I'm gonna have a similar representation in the thorax. And so that's gonna make the thorax appear to be flattened in, in, on the backside and, and tipped forward as well. So, you, so you're just seeing the iterative effects in the anatomy of the orientation under those circumstances. But again, you can't just look at this thing in two dimensions. So in your first representation, the first athlete, because of the way that their, their ERs and IRs are, are represented, they're just more turned than the second athlete is. So both athletes are anteriorly oriented, both athletes are coming forward, but one is turning more than the other. So the first representation is just showing you that there's more turn. Okay. More down on the left side, like left side is more forward than the right side. Correct, because so and 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 they gave you a little bit of a, of a of a clue. So so the first athlete was complaining complaining about some left sided lower back pain. Yes. Right. Yes. So uh, quite often, um, if you have a compressive strategy there, so a compressive strategy would be that side pushed forward more, right? So we have more of the internal rotation represented in the spine, right? So we have a correlation there. And so now we can say, well, maybe that's why they're complaining about this left side low back pain, because they're just turned more to the right by getting pushed forward more on the left side. Right. But this is why, this is why you want to take people through activities and if, if you're the type of person that does, does tests on the table in situations where maybe you're working with somebody with pain, this is why you do those measures is because you can't just make a blanket statement based on a visual representation. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that visual representations aren't helpful. It just means that they can't be absolute. Okay, we still have to have confirmation by, by watching people move and, and determining what behaviors we're actually observing. Okay. But, but again, that's why you do this. That's why you have people go through um, movement, complex movements like squats and toe touches and turns and, and uh, you know, anything else that you find valuable, right? Um, you can use any movement as, as a representation um, to track over time for change, right? You just have to understand a little bit more about what you're, about what you're observing. So, so Bill, the first thing would be to get these athletes back, like shift their weight back. Well, if, if, they're, if, if they're anterior, if they if they're oriented anteriorly, yes. But but I think that in, in the the case of the first athlete, where you have more of the of the turning, now you're going to have to you're going to have to determine. It's like, do I need to bring them back first and then turn them, or do can I just turn them? So so again, that's going to be your determination. My best guess would be the fact that the with, because the first athlete's straight leg raise is limited on both sides, you're going to have to bring him straight back first, most likely, most likely. Okay. okay. Um, just sim simply because it's like, that's indicative of the fact. So, so um, you know, they, they've got a lot of spinal orientation that's, that's allowing them to access the, uh, the internal rotation, but you don't have a straight leg raise. So that means you've got that posterior lower compressive strategy that you're going to have to resolve as well. Okay. So real, posteriorly orient, reduce the, the posterior lower compressive strategy, and then you can probably make the turn. And, and also, what do you mean when you say uh, that you don't look at people in a single plane, like you just don't, I don't look at their form? The planes don't yeah. exist. The planes don't exist. So, so I don't yeah. worry about them, right? Yeah. The planes, planes are to have a discussion about where things are in space. They are not representative of movement. 
Okay. So if you and I are having a talk and we're, we're like, like we are now, and we want to know where you're putting someone in space, we could say that, oh, they're in this, your, your coordinate system, the XYZ coordinates, right? Three dimensions. So we, can use, we can use that to, to have a conversation, but, but people don't move in those planes because they're not there. They're not, they don't exist there. Okay. We move by the change in the shape. Right. And so that's the thing. That's what we're doing when we're, when we're taking our measures, we're trying to determine what, what shape are they in space? Because that determines what movement you have access to. Right. So like Bill, when, when an athlete shows up at your door, do you like typically do these table tests or do you have some other assessments that you go through in order to have a clear picture of where somebody is? It, it, it honestly, it really depends on, on what our, what our purpose is. Um, you know, when I, I work in the, I have my little purple room where I'll see people that, and typically they're coming to me with a, with a problem typically associated with pain. And in those cases, we'll do complex movements as we always do. So we'll, where the whole body's involved. So like toe touches and squats and split squats and things like that. Right. So we determine what, what it looks like, how they're moving in space. What can they access? What can they not access? So we have a comparator. So complex movements make great comparators um, because they, they do involve the whole body. If necessary, you put them on the table and then you, you try to measure things um, in relative isolation, which is never possible. The whole body is involved in every movement. So if I'm measuring a hip, internal and external rotation, the entire body is moving as I am creating that. But what I'm trying to discern is, do they have relative motions available to them that may allow them to distribute loads and forces? So, so again, with pain, in a lot of cases, we have a reduction in the adaptability. And so most people don't distribute load and force well, and therefore they load structure or an area um, where there could be um, increased pressures, reduced circulation, and any number of things that would contribute to a pain experience. And, and apart from this, Bill, like uh, uh, this, uh, the second athlete, like who has the limited bilateral ER. Yes, sir. Uh, and uh, he has a straight leg range of like 90 ish. So, yeah. uh, what would be your, like the lowest hanging fruit? What would you do with him first? Well, the, the biggest issue that you have, okay, so, so here's what you have you have limited hip ER, okay? And then you have a lot of hip IR, okay? So, so again, if I have the anterior orientation, the chances of me not having the anterior compression is, is pretty slim. And so in this case, your internal rotation is coming from the spinal rotation. The fact that you have a straight leg raise that appears to be normal, um, you have to recognize where you're actually measuring this. So the fact that, um, let me grab my pelvis here real quick. When you've got, when you've got the limitations in the hip ranges of motion, and then you see this, this uh, uh, what, like I said, what appears to be a normal straight leg raise, you're not measuring in this straight line. Again, that's why this plane doesn't matter. So you think you're doing a straight leg raise in the imaginary sagittal plane when the reality is, is you have a spine that's turning away from you as you're measuring. So you're measuring out here. 
okay, which is in, which is going to be a more internally rotated position because as I raise the leg up, the, the pelvis turns away. And so it looks like, oh, I have 90 degrees of straight leg raise. So then the assumption is, is that everything's okay there, but then it doesn't jibe with any of your other tests, right? So it doesn't make sense. If, if you were truly measuring in this, in this straight ahead line, you should have normal external rotations and a normal straight leg raise that go together, but you don't. You have a limited external rotation in what appears to be a normal straight leg raise. So you just have to understand where you're actually measuring in space. That's why I, that's why I don't like to, to use the reference of a, of a straight plane. That's why you can't make an assessment in two dimensions and make an assumption that you know everything about this person, especially again, in athlete one that you were talking about, we have a much more significant turn that's taking place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. You just got a little bit of time left. How much time do I have left, Bill? Less than two minutes, my friend. Okay. So, Bill, uh, no like, is there a limit? Uh, is there a limit to the number of questions that one can ask through emails? Like, well, I have I have a personal limit of how much time I have to spend on it. But you're you're welcome to ask me more questions. <laughs> Somebody that you work with may benefit from developing a double body weight back squat that would enhance their ability to throw. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, well, Today is Wednesday, that means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. The Coffee and Coaches Conference call, as usual, I say this every time because it is true, um, these calls are getting better and better. Um, the questions are getting better. We've got a great group of people, so uh, please join us at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. Uh, today's Q&A is uh, with Drew Keel from the QB Docs podcast. And so uh, Drew and I talked for about two hours um, a couple weeks ago and we recorded the whole thing. This is just one small segment where we were talking about a, a framework of how we would, would train a thrower. While we, we wanna base everything that we do on principles, we don't know the outcomes. So there's a very specific way that we would implement certain strategies for training um, and determine based on the outcomes whether we're following the appropriate process or not. So this kind of outlines how you might do that. So I think you could probably take this and apply it in any um, training environment. But uh, again, this is one that's specific for throwers. So if you do work with throwers, um, again, Drew works with quarterbacks almost exclusively, um, this will be a really good one for you. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. You know, once again, we talked about this before as, as far as football, the culture of the weight room in football, right. along with the culture of the quarterback guru and what he's trying to teach. Right. It's almost like, it's almost driving guys down toward a path of, you know, inadaptability right it's like right. I'm, I'm compressing in the weight room and i'm trying to teach the guys in bottom trying to teach things in boxes and it's i'm almost driving the well you're adding you're adding unnecessary constraints potentially yeah 
right, that become limiting factors rather than enhancing factors, right? So everybody thinks that more strength would be better, but the reality is, is like, well, how did you achieve that? Because if I need to change the physical shape of a rib cage and I take away a turn that you need it, Right, so, so strength training eventually will change the physical shape. All you gotta do is like, look at the extremes for a second. It's like, go, go take the world's biggest bodybuilders and you see how wide they are and then they turn sideways and, and you can see the flattening of the, of the rib cages, right? So that flattening is a reduction in the ability to turn. Now, up to a degree, that increases force production potentially in a favorable way. And then you sort of cross that threshold where it now becomes interference. And so somebody, somebody that you work with may benefit from developing a double body weight back squat that would enhance their ability to throw. Mm -hmm. If you applied that across the board and you said every, if one guy does it, then everybody must need it. And then you just took away somebody else's superpowers because you didn't consider them as an individual as to what they may need. Mm -hmm. right? Can't just, we can't make these blanket applications of method. What we have to do is we have to respect the principles upon which the skill is based. That's what we're talking about. And then you have to say like, okay, what enhances my ability to access that skill and what potentially creates interference for that skill? So for guys that are asking the question now, it's almost like there's a lot of what ifs, right? There's of a course. lot of- There is what ifs. Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm gonna drive force production, but how do I know that threshold of which it's now becoming interference? Right. So I, I guess my question is, we, cause we started, we, we talk about, and you talk a lot about key performance indicators, yes. right? The development yes. of key performance indicators to have objective measures in place to know yes. how you're progressing someone over a base period of time for someone who yes. wants to try and develop some of those things for themselves. What does that look like for a quarterback? I don't know. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So here you go. Um, everybody's familiar with getting their blood pressure taken. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so average, average blood pressure tends to fall into that 120 over 80 kind of measurement. Right. So that's the comparator. That, that everybody makes. And so, you know, if your numbers are higher than that, then you might be, be qualified as high blood pressure. If your numbers are lower than that, they might say, well, you got low blood pressure, right? And so they're comparing you to an average, not knowing at all where you might perform best, because keep in mind, it's an average, okay? We do know that we reach a certain threshold and then the, we, we've seen over time, because we've been able to measure things over time, they say, you know, if you go 140 over 90 and you're any higher than that, you're probably going to pay a consequence for that, okay? But we have thousands and millions and millions of measures to go by where we can say things like that, okay? When we look at individuals on the, on the performance scheme, we don't know what the answer is. It's very gray. And it's very complex. That's why we rely on principles. And we say, okay, what are the principles that I need? Is there something that I can do to enhance this? And then we do something. So we train them. 
and then we test and we say, what was I trying to impact? Okay, so you have to have an intention first and foremost. So you ask a question, you say, well, I need you to be able to increase your throwing velocity. Okay, so what contributes to velocity? Well, I have to have an excursion of range of motion to access. I have to be able to produce force at a certain place in time. And there is a window of that when you're looking at a throw. And then I say, well, what enhances my ability to produce that force? So do I have sufficient range of motion? I don't know. I don't know what your needs might be. So we measure you and then we do something and we say, well, what happened with our experiment and, and did we do something that was favorable? So did we increase throwing velocity? And so we say, yes, we were successful in, in, our, in, our, in, in improving our throwing velocity. So we're going to continue on that path if more velocity is needed because we saw that it was successful. But then we remeasure and there's going to be a point in time where we no longer capture more throwing velocity. So adding more strength in the gym will have a, a threshold that beyond that, doing more doesn't make us better. Okay, so, so we're tracking a number of things over time and we're seeing what changes as we train in regards to the intention that we started with, which was in this case, we're talking about throwing velocity. Yeah. If it's a range of motion problem, we do the exact same thing, but we're tracking a number of things over time. And then we kind of see, well, what's most important? What do we really need to do? Now, here's the cool thing. With the model that, that, that I've constructed, we have representations of certain behaviors which people are biased towards. So we know what you're supposed to be good at already. And then we compare that and we say, how does that change over time? What influences that over time? And so we actually have a, we have what the, what the archetypes. So when we talk about people with wide infrastructural angles or narrow infrastructural angles, there's a whole archetype. So, so we're not just looking at that angle as that singular entity. What we're looking at is like, how does this person produce force compared to somebody that has maybe like a more steep helical angle? Um, how does this influence what range of motions that they're going to be biased towards? So your narrow ISA people tend to have more external rotation. So the layback and the, and the end position tends to be a little bit more naturally produced, right? So they're all biased towards certain things. And so we monitor this, these things over time. And that's how you do it. You can't just say that, oh, here's the quarterback program because this is, this is throwing, and then you apply it to everybody the same way. We apply the principles the same way, but we have to monitor them for change because we don't know what the outcome's going to be. Somebody might need a lot of strength training. Somebody might need not, not very much at all to make the same effective change because of what they bring to the table. All of this all of this is idiosyncratic. So it's very individualized. What we're using is a model to help us determine the best course of interventions. It's the best starting point, And then that allows us to make better decisions along the way. But what's, the, what's, what's happening when we put on a tight knee wrap? In regards to knee wraps, so is there anything we can glean from, you know, getting someone, say, for instance, who might be doing a squat who reports, you know, um, uh, patellofemoral pain, and then we put some wraps in place and that, that pain is no longer reported. Now, is it just the compression of the wrap? Is it doing something? Is it creating a yield in the tissue? Is it, is it a, 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 
you know, doing something to support the, the joint as far as the position of it during the course of the movement? What's the what's what's happening when we put on a tight knee wrap in respect to that? Okay. So so what you're getting is a magnification of the pre-existing mechanism. Okay. So um, the knee, like all the fluid inside of the knee is secured by the connective tissues, right? So it keeps the synovial fluid in, in that space because without the synovial fluid, guess what? Bad things happen, right? And, and so as you stand on a knee, that synovial fluid gets compressed from, out, from inside the, the joint to the outside part. Do you understand that? It's like I'm pushing down the femur on the tibia. Yeah. And so they don't touch, they don't touch, but I'm pushing fluid out from between the two bones and it goes out to the sides, right? And then it bumps into this connective tissue and this connective tissue, based on how fast you load it, and how much pressure you apply to it, it behaves in a certain way. And so that connective tissue that surrounds the knee actually gets stiffer when you stand on that leg. And that also keeps the bones from touching, but it also gives me a, an element of control as to where that synovial fluid is going to go. You understand? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to take more connective tissue and I'm going to wrap it around the outside of your knee. Really tight. Yep. Okay. So I took, the, I took a normal representation, a normal behavior of the knee, a normal behavior of the connective tissues, and I basically augmented it with something that, that is external, right? So that's a normal mechanism, okay? So I increased the, the, I increased the internal pressure by creating the external force, right? Okay? Yep. And so, yep. so that's going to limit that's going to limit to a degree where that synovial fluid can go, right? And so if, if I'm squeezing from the outside and I'm putting pressure from the inside and it, so it's gonna hold that, that synovial fluid around that, that outside of the knee and it makes it very, very stiff. So it makes it harder to bend, right? Right. So I got a knee that wants to stay straight based on where the fluid volumes are. Then I'm going to stack a bunch of weight on top of it. And then I'm going to intentionally try to bend a knee that is now oriented to be a much straighter knee. So it's very, very stiff, right? And so now as I descend, <clears throat> all of that mechanism now will, will yield to a certain degree based on the, the magnitude of the load, the speed that I'm moving and such, okay? And then it's going to store that energy and it's going to help me release that energy all the while augmenting this, this normal behavior of the knee. So I made a super knee basically is what I did, right? So that's how the knee wraps work. If you have somebody that has patellofemoral pain, chances are you've also reduced the, the mechanism that is causing the focal load that would be, be responsible for the, the symptom, okay? So I, I have altered how much the knee can orient. I have altered how much the, 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 the bony relationship can change. And I kept it within a certain, certain range that is no longer required for me to have a symptom. The exact oh. mechanism, you know, we'd have to talk about that. We have to see what, what other changes took place, right? But basically you just, you, you just magnified what would be a pre-existing mechanism. 
So we can't glean anything from uh, an inability to yield tissue or anything like that. Well, you're by... reducing you're reducing the the natural yielding that's associated with by adding stiffness. It doesn't mean that you won't get a yield. It just means that you added some stiffness, okay, externally, and then that was beneficial. So could you could you then could you sort of then infer from that that the tissue is yield if you're getting no pain when you put a knee wrap in place and you're getting pain without the knee wrap, then your tissue is yielding possibly too much Maybe without the knee wrap? Maybe. Hmm. It depends on, it depends on, so Matt, it depends on the source because, so, so, so think about, think about two representations of connective tissues that, that might produce a symptom. Okay. It's usually when there's no adaptability. So when I take away relative motion, like there's a potential for, for more compression, more focal compression that might result in, in a symptom, correct? Yep. Does that make sense? Okay. So if yep. I have connective tissues, so think about this on one side of the knee, I might have connective tissues that are at end range yielding. On the other side of the knee, I might have connective tissues that are end range overcoming. Right. right? So one side's really, really stiff. The other side's really, really loose. Both of those representations, if they're at the end where there's no more adaptability, could, could produce symptoms. So which one is it? Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. So you might be able to determine that, right? Through, through examination and then interventions and such, right? As to what changes take place and you go, oh, when we make this change, the symptoms gets better. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I can't give you like a like an exact response on that because I don't know which was the culprit, so to speak, as to, okay, are we dealing with somebody that has way too much stiffness in the connective tissues and they no longer have adaptability? Or do I have somebody that hit end range yielding and they no longer have adaptability? Yeah, or, yeah. or do I have both? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I just wasn't sure. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, it is. <laughs> Welcome to the conundrum of anterior knee pain. Yeah. And then, like I said, sometimes you just don't know, and then you do the right thing, and they get better, and you go, okay, I'm going to make a mental note. The next time I see this behavior and this, this representation, I'm going to do that intervention again, and I'm going to see what happens. And then the more times you do that, the more likely your, your intervention is, is correct. And then you can surmise from the response as to what the mechanism may be. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes that's sense. kind of how you figure stuff out. Like they say, Oh, static stretching takes away power output, but it does come back after a while. Right. Yeah. That's why. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, kind of a weird Friday, kind of a busy Friday. Gotta dig right into today's Q&A. Um, this is another segment that I did with, uh, with Drew Keel uh, from the QB Docs. This was actually not part of the podcast, actually. This was an extra conversation that we had and we said, hey, you know, this is really good stuff. Let's just record it. And so we started, started talking about <clears throat> um, yielding actions and, and how they actually work. And then we used throwing as a context. So Drew's a quarterback uh, coach. And so um, 
it, it made sense to, to take this um, into his realm. So you get a little bit of a context so you can kind of see how this actually works um, in, in that framing. Um, very, very useful conversation, I think, because I don't think a lot of people understand how these connective tissue behaviors actually work and how important they are. Um, this is where all of this velocity and power output is going to be coming from. And so we actually talk about that a little bit. We also talk about the influence of static stretching on connective tissues and why you see the behaviors that you do in the literature. So again, very, very useful. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget to put 15-minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete it. Uh, podcast will be up on Sunday per usual. Everybody have an outstanding weekend, and I will see you next week. We're talking about yielding. Yeah. Okay. And I always talk about rate because um, it's, it's one of the easier ones to see represented, and then we can talk about the why, okay? So um, when I move quickly, when I move quickly, um, so it's, it's a higher rate of loading on connective tissues. The connective tissues behave more stiffly, right? When I apply a force over an extended period, then the soft tissues gradually give away and, and store energy. So we're unkinking the, the collagen fibers, right? When we're, when we're yielding, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so under, under those circumstances, you unkink them, they store energy, and then they want to respond by returning to, to, their, to their previous structure. So, you know, rubber band's a good representation. Like we can use that. Um, and, but um, when, we, when we talk about the why, okay, so um, connective tissues are, are surrounded by and, and imbibed with the waters, right? So, that, you know, um, collagen fibers are just surrounded by. Um, and so when, when you pull on a connective tissue very, very quickly, there's not enough time for the water to escape. So that's why the tissue behaves very stiffly. So water's incompressible. You squeeze it and, it and it doesn't move. But if I do it over a long period of time, there's plenty of time for the water to get squeezed out. That's why we see the two differences in behavior, especially with rate, rate dependent behaviors. Okay. Right. But now you have to say, it's like, okay, well, what context am I asking for this yield to occur? Is it very, very quick? Or is it something that I can do under a, a circumstance where I can apply a load over a longer period of time? So, um, so uh, you ever read those studies where it says static stretching reduces power output? Yes. Okay, well, why does that happen? Because that rate change, it's already, that, uh, the rate on the, on the soft, the connective tissue is already expanded. So you don't have that contractile ability to, to overcome. Okay, so, so static stretching addresses one end of the yield and overcome relationship right? So if I take a rubber band and I pull it back, that's a yield. If I pull it back and I release it very quickly, it snaps back. So that's the overcome, all right? But understanding how connective tissue behavior works is that when I yield, if I, so if I, if I hold a static stretch long enough, I squeeze the water out from the outside and then it slowly comes back into shape like a stretch Armstrong, you know what I'm talking about? The, the toy, right? Okay. And it slowly comes back into shape as the water that got squeezed out goes back into the tissues. So until that water goes back in, I have this yielded tissue that won't snap back. So it will not overcome fast enough. So the power output that's associated with, with movement is the stretch and release element of connective tissues. 
Yes. But I got a situation where I pulled it so long, I squeezed enough water out of it that it just takes more time for the water to go back into the tissues. So the tissue behavior comes, goes back to normal. And if you, if you read, the, read the studies, like they say, oh, static stretching takes away power output, but it does come back after a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why. Okay. That's why it comes back is because we restored the initial starting conditions, but that's why static stretching doesn't enhance power is because of, of the way that you're applying the yielding action does not allow the overcome to occur quick enough. Gotcha. Gotcha. So okay. if I was trying to drive yielding in a specific area. Could I just make the movement slower in essence? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You can, but you gotta, you have to understand it's like, okay, how long am I doing it for? Um, do, do, am I, am I trying to create a situation where I'm storing and releasing energy? Yeah. Okay. Or am I just trying to create a, a buffer to end range of motion, which would be something that might be useful in a static stretching kind of a situation. Gotcha. Gotcha. So for, I'm just going to give an example just for context, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have an athlete that well, let's say quarterback, right? If I have a quarterback taking his drop and he goes into that transfer of that weight on that right foot, he can't get, he can't transfer that weight very well uh, during his, during that, that phase of the motion to, you know, yeah. use the force. Yeah. Would it, would it be, it would be beneficial for me to first teach him how to yield better on that side without the, the force going forward, right? Because okay. if, I, if I teach him how to overcome with that initially, it's just going to drive the overcoming. Yeah. I'm never, I'm never well, he has, to, he has to compensate. He has to compensate. He has to compensate. Yeah. So, so, so here's the description that you just gave me, okay? Um, if you were going to try to put, put some, some force behind a throw, so you're just standing out on the field, okay? And I know you've done this like a, a gajillion times. Every time you want to like, like put some air under the ball, right? So you, you sort of walk into it, right? Yeah. So you step forward with your right foot, then your left foot, and then you throw, right? Yeah. Not like when you're in, the, in a pocket and, you, and, you, and you've already planted your foot. You sort of step into it. Well, why do you step into it? It's because you're, you're creating, you're, you're landing in an early propulsive representation on the right foot. You move through middle, you go to max, you step into the other side, and now you've stepped into this with a tremendous amount of stored momentum. Now you do the exact same thing on the left foot, and now you can translate that momentum into the ball, and then that's demonstrated as velocity, right? And then that's, that's why, why you why throw. Crow hop? Is that why outfielders crow hop whenever they, like for, on their throws? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But now let's, so let's, let's, let's take a, uh, let's take a scenario. You're going to do the exact same thing. Okay. But this time when you step forward, so the early representation um, would, would be, let's just say you can't capture the early. So you can't get your, you can't get your big toe down to the ground. Okay. So you're going to stay in a supinated foot representation, but you still got to make the throw. What you're going to have to do is then you have to, you have to compensate for the lack of the ability to go to middle propulsion or max propulsion in the throw. So you're going to do it in a different way. So now you're going to have to create an orientation because I got to get up and over that foot. So I don't have the dorsiflexion anymore, but I got to get over the foot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lift up and I'm going to go over it and I'm going to tilt my pelvis forward and down to create the downforce to get to the other foot. But now I've altered the, 
I've altered the, the timing of the throw. And so now my accuracy is going to be compromised. So it's not that you can't produce the force. It's just that you're not going to do it in, in a manner where you have the relative motions available to you where you can produce a consistent release point. So this is why the, the, the release points get and you know, All you got to do is they, they'll, they'll do like a, in baseball, they do a, they do a plot where they can capture release points thing and they can measure it on, on coordinates. Right, so they can always tell where the the release point is. You see these nice smooth plots that are on a, like a best fit line versus like a scattering that's all over the place. So you got a guy that doesn't have access to even the the normal ankle mobility. Doesn't mean he can't throw. Just means that his accuracy might be compromised, or or you're probably going to see the onset of of these little aches and pains that start to show up because he's got to use compensatory strategies which are compressive. Right, so maybe he compresses at the elbow, maybe he compresses at the shoulder, maybe he compresses at the hip, maybe he uses his lower back, maybe he uses his neck, right? However it might be to, to create these throws.